0: Hey there, welcome along to the final Olympic special from the High Performance Podcast in association with Lotus and you have not heard a conversation like this with anyone on the podcast so far. I guess there are small snippets you're going to hear which you can relate to others but I don't think any athlete has come on this podcast and spoken quite like this since we started. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to this young lady um, today. We're in conversation with Johanna Konta.
1: I like talking. I like sharing my experiences. I I've been very open in in the work that I've done with Juan, with 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 you know people in the past, especially on the mental side, and I think I don't I don't have any hang-ups about sharing. Pain times resistance equals suffering. So if I'm in pain, let's say at a 10, but and I'm, you know, resisting at a 10, my suffering's gonna be a hundred. Yeah. But if my resistance is zero then my suffering's zero. I don't like it when I think you know you hear these hyperbolic words of like kind of they've completely lost control they're you know they're they're out of it or you know let things happen let things move um, but for sure for me personally I needed to find a space where I could channel and could start re, reorganising my thoughts when I became stressed or when I became so-called emotional. I think what's really important
0: to to mention at this point, of course, is that um, Johanna Conte didn't go to the Olympics because she sadly tested positive for coronavirus just a few weeks before the Games started. Um, And I guess we all live a life where we're constantly basing our opinions of ourselves on our Work performances or external factors and external successes. And if I'd have seen most athletes mention that one of the biggest moments of their careers wasn't going to happen just a few weeks before they were scheduled to do it, I'd have been really worried for them. Um, but as you'll hear in this conversation with Johanna Conta, she has spent a long time working really hard to get herself into a space mentally where she really can accept anything that happens to her. And you're going to hear why, and you're going to hear the tools that. She's managed to attach to herself to do that. But it's also a reminder that the sports people that we talk to exist in this world of highs and lows. And whether it's Johnny Wilkinson on this podcast saying that winning the Rugby World Cup is no more important than the washing up. Because if it was, no longer being a rugby player would mean that he's less of a man. Or whether it's the Arsenal defender, Hector Bellerin, coming on the podcast and saying you have to be like a candle. So whether the world is up or down around you, your flame is steady. It's a reminder that Johanna Konta has to be exactly the same because it was a real blow for her that she wasn't able to go to the Tokyo 2020 Games. When we sat down to have this conversation with her, she was all set and ready to go. Um, but no one really knows quite what's around the corner for any of us and it takes us back to that same old conversation about being process-orientated, not outcome-orientated. So Johanna Konta knows that she still did everything that she could to make 2021 a year to remember, but when it came to the Olympics, it just wasn't to be. Anyway, as you know, without Lotus cars, these Olympic specials wouldn't be happening. And I just want to put on record um, to say to Lotus, not just for the bike they designed for Team GB um, that powered us to so many gold medals, but for the fact that they wanted us to do these Olympic specials purely to have really in depth conversations with Olympians so that you at home, for free, could hear this podcast. And take those lessons. I think Lotus deserve huge credit for that. So thank you very much to Lotus for their continued support of High Performance. You can find them at Lotus Cars across social media. But right now, let's get straight on with it. It's time for another and the final Olympic special in association with Lotus Cars from the High Performance Podcast. Enjoy.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style
1: to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Joining us today, a woman who operates daily among the elite, the best in Britain at what she does, and a product of a life of sacrifice and commitment. But what made her focus with such clarity on her goals as a child? How were her early years shaped by leaving her parents to focus on her chosen sport? What have psychologists added to her armoury? And when times are tough, what gets her through? It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Johanna Konta. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's quite the intro, it makes me quite nervous.
0: Oh, you'll be fine. Listen. You've had much more nerve wracking things than a high performance podcast interview (laughs) over the years. So let's get going then. And our first question always is, what is high performance?
1: In my mind, high performance is finding your own 1%. It's finding your own... The, the best that you can be within yourself and that's regardless so it's basically your own pb really it's regardless of of who you're competing in what what your job is what what your passions are it's 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 kind of honing in on your elite self and i think elite doesn't just apply to sportsmen and women it applies to every walk of life depending on what you do i
0: love the conversation about the extra one percent because it's it kind of reminds me that so many people go around thinking they're giving it they're all but they haven't been opened up to this sort of extra 1%. Can you remember when you realised there was more to come, the difference between good and elite, the difference between the 1% and the, the non-1%ers?
1: Um, I think it's it's finding that combination between working hard, but also working right. I've always been a hard worker. I've always... Um, understood that I needed to sacrifice, I needed to dedicate myself to to what I do and, and, and give it my all to give, you know, to have the best shot at succeeding. Um, but I think sometimes with hard work can come tense, tensity, and it, you can become a bit paralyzed, you can become a bit more stressed. And I think it's almost then understanding that you're doing the best that you can, but almost adding a bit of relaxation into there. And I think that's when you start opening yourself up to working the right way, both hard and applying yourself, but being productive and and actually, I think starting to build on on what you build on to to be successful.
3: Now you said really casually there, Joe, that I've always known that you have to work hard, you have to commit, as if that's obvious to you but for a lot of people it isn't so how did you come to that realization
1: I think I was maybe quite fortunate with my upbringing um, my dad's a bit of a workhorse and for as long as I can remember my dad's worked in the hospitality business and their you know holidays are not that simple there every Christmas every Easter every every holiday he was working he was working long shifts long hours and so um, you know, we'd get up extra early in the morning because I'd go with him to work before he then dropped me off at school. So I saw the kind of life that he lived and it was nonstop and it was hard work. And so I think I was maybe exposed to that quite early on. So when tennis came into the picture or my passion for tennis, I think I saw that as the blueprint for how I apply myself to what I do then um so yeah I think maybe yeah dad was a bit of an influence on that <laughs> I, I'm
0: sure I read somewhere that you were about nine years old eight or nine years old and yes. you decided I'm just going to be the world number one tennis player
1: yes that's, a, that's quite <laughs> yes. a goal to set yourself at quite
0: a young age like yeah <laughs> my daughter's still not sure what she's going to be doing um, um so yeah talk us through that that's amazing
1: I started playing, yeah, about eight years old. I was seven, eight years old, and um, I started playing because the school that I went to had after-school care. There was a club right next door. They picked a a group of us kids up, took us there. Mum and Dad both worked full-time, got babysat for, you know, a couple hours, and during that period I started playing. I did not enjoy it then, so actually I didn't like it, and and to this day when I ask Mum and Dad about it, they sometimes say, yeah, I would ask, do I have to go play? And they'd always say, well, no, but you'll – you'll need to go do something else sport was always a big part of of our family and it it was something that they wanted me to do for a hobby for physical education so that was that was staying um anyway I somehow still ended up going to play um but then mum and dad entered me into some weekend competitions like kind of at the club where I was practicing and and then I started to play and compete and that's when I fell in love with it and that's when I became hungry for it and kind of oh this is really good and then I um, I think I've lost my train of thought there. What was your question? <laughs> no, well, like, Exactly
0: on it. I mean, I was saying, where did it come from? It well, sounds yeah, to me like what you're saying is it was actually, it wasn't the playing tennis that. No, it was the you. competing. The competing. Mm. Uh, no, that for that sure. That is interesting.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Because it was, I think what gave it purpose for me. Um, I think for right. me, training without purpose is a bit boring, tiring. Training's hard. It's painful. It's exhausting. And it, it, I, I'm not one of those people that necessarily might do it just for just for laughs, really. Um, so I think it gave that purpose of, oh, okay, I now need to go practice because I want to be better. And then suddenly, you know, became conversation around. Dad was like, okay, well, if you want to, you know, become good, then we need to go train. And I was like, okay we'll go running every, every morning, 5am, let's go running. And so before we, he'd go to work and then drop me off at school, we'd always then start running. Um,
3: and that was you driving that, that so that yes. was nurturing it, but that was you setting yes. that
1: fire. Yes, dad was completely o'clock. on board. I think, I think I'm, I'm the son my dad never had. So he was fully on board <laughs> with like <laughs> me being um, all active and, and, and loving sports. So yeah, no, he, funny story though, at the start of our runs, there was this little hill yeah. and we'd always go around that big golf course. Um, this was when our, we were living in Sydney. And how old are you now? Nine, ten.
0: And how often is this happening?
1: Uh, every morning, probably five times a week. Brilliant. Yeah, like school mornings. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure every morning. I'm and, and what time might, of the day? 5 a.m.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about getting our kids
1: out of, <laughs>
2: out of I bed
1: know. for school. I love <laughs> <day. Yeah>. wow. <laughs> okay. But we, we're running up this little hill and... I remember dad always used to like, okay, we'll race up the hill. And I was like, okay. And I'd I'd sometimes win, I'd sometimes lose. But, you know, I was like running so hard. Only now, maybe a couple years ago, was I thinking of that. And I asked my dad, I'm like, there's no way a 10-year-old girl beats her like 30-something, 40-something-year-old dad at sprints up a hill. I'm like, did you let me win? He's like, of course. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so betrayed. I'm like, uh, my whole life's been a lie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I still to this day think of that thinking, why did I think for a moment that actually a 10-year-old girl Love can it. beat her dad? And I really did. I
0: thought and I did. And what were you thinking at five to five in the morning when you're having to climb out of bed? Like, what was the what was the end of goal at that point? Was it, because th- you, were, as you said, you don't enjoy training, so it wasn't going
1: for the run that was like, woohoo. Yeah. Running. Um. To be honest, I don't remember... All I remember now as, a, as an adult is those are some of the best memories of my childhood. Um, just we'd always set the goal of running to the top of that golf course for sunrise. And for me, just having that kind of father daughter time, like yeah. spending that time with my dad running like, you know, just that physical exertion beautiful kind of sunrise like something to aim for up there it's honestly it's some of my my most fond childhood memories
3: what was it that that was lit in you was it the idea of beating other people or beating yourself that really lit a fire
1: to be honest I don't know um I don't know and and I just remember even now kind of again as an adult thinking back on what that felt like to compete. I just remember being on court on you know these synthetic grass courts with like the sand on top that's that's what I started to learn on and I just I just see myself playing these matches and 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 trying and just trying hard and at that point I didn't understand the difference between trying hard and and trying right kind of yeah. thing and I just remember just wanting to win and wanting to yeah, probably beat the other person and come out, come out the victor. That's I think that's what fueled me. And what were your parents like if ever
0: you said, oh, do "You know what? I don't fancy getting up today. I don't fancy training today. I don't really want to take part in this weekend's tennis tournament."
1: Oh, I don't know. I think, I mean, there were a couple times when I was a young girl actually where um, where I didn't want to do it. And I remember, I distinctly remember one competition, and I must have been, I'd say maybe ten or eleven. And the night before I'd been at a friend's house, Um, I had a sleepover. And during the day I was playing in the pool and stuff. And I think I was quite tired. And they were the ones that were taking me to this tournament. And my dad was going to come collect me at the end. And for whatever reason, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe because I was nervous about the match, maybe because I was tired, a combination of the two. I went on court and I... I basically gave up the match. I said, I felt ill. I said, I I had a stomachache. And I remember my dad turned up. He took one look at me as like, you have no stomachache, then you're done. Like, we'll stop playing right here because you know, you don't just give up. You don't just for no. So, and he, yeah, we got in the car, went home. I think he put my rackets away and I cried. I cried. I think for. I mean, to me, it feels like days and days, probably weeks. It was probably like maybe an afternoon. I don't know, but for me, it was like world ending. Yeah. And I think I must have done convincing on my dad, and must have just like, please, please give me another chance. Um, but so obviously, I started playing again. I don't remember that part, but I just remember that moment when I was a young girl on on giving up and why. I should never give up and why I should never just throw in the towel and, and kind of leave.
3: And how vivid is that memory even now when you're playing on court at Wimbledon or in New York? How vivid does that memory still?
1: It's not at the forefront yeah. of my of my mind. I, I understand the value and I know what it means to be struggling out there, but I also know what good things can come in just staying there. So whether it's going right or wrong, just staying there, mm. knowing things aren't permanent, knowing... Feeling stress or feeling anxiety or happiness or joy, anything, it's not permanent. Nothing's a permanent state. So I think that as an adult, I think probably comes from, you know, learning that lesson of not giving in a towel because you never know what can happen when you stay there. That was probably a shaping experience. <laughs> Definitely. So
3: there's a fascinating line that you, again, you use there where you spoke about trying hard and then trying smart. Mm. So what age was it that you made that distinction in terms of if you were going to commit to tennis and competing and progressing? What age did you realise that you were going to have to go all in?
1: I think I, I realised that very early on, on about going all in. I think when I was about eight, nine years old, I decided, you know what, I love this. I want to be number one in the world. I want to win all four Grand Slams twice and I want to win a gold medal. Like, and were you just encouraged at
0: home? Great, go for that.
1: Yeah, I think I was encouraged to dream. Yeah. I was encouraged to imagine something big for myself. Um, but I was encouraged to do that through understanding that I would need to put in the work to be able to achieve that. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was never just dream about it and, you know, it'll come and it'll be practical steps I'd need to take to be the best that I can be. But
0: I think you need to dream in the first place. I think too many yeah. people, either with their
1: kids or on their own,
0: They don't allow themselves to have that big dream. And I reckon without dreaming of being world number one or dreaming of, you know, winning a Grand Slam or whatever, you probably wouldn't do it. You wouldn't have got here.
1: Well, no, but I think it it is dreams that that actually, I think, also give us a, a roadmap, essentially, for what our passions are it's 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 what do you see yourself doing what what do you imagine and, and, it, and it can change it's not everyone who dreams of being an astronaut becomes an astronaut and, and things evolve but it gives you ideas and I think that's what you from childhood you kind of take into adult life of okay what what are my passions mm-hmm. what what kind of yeah. brings light into my life like so yeah no I think dreams are very important
0: so how important is perseverance then to go with those dreams? Because no tennis player gets to where you have in a linear way. There's there's low times as well. So can you talk to us about perseverance?
1: Oh, perseverance. I mean, I think perseverance is, I would say, generally an asset. But I think sometimes it's also doesn't help as well, depending um, on kind of where you are in your career. For, I mean, for me... I persevered I'd say 95% of the time because I just I knew that this was what I was meant to do mm-hmm. and what I was I was destined to do born to do kind of I, I was going to make it um, but then 5% I think is persevering because you don't know what else to do. Yep. You don't know what life is outside what you've done for the last 10 15 20 years. So I think you don't always choose perseverance. I do think sometimes it chooses you or it's easier to just stay and just keep doing it. Um, but I'd, yeah, I think that's probably perseverance. It's not that inspiring. It's a bit depressing. <laughs> a bit so it's vital, so, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So how do you
3: come now to realize that sometimes you might be flogging a dead horse or you might be persevering on the wrong endeavor or the wrong task basically how do you make that distinction
1: I think through time and experience I think through my career especially until I became kind of what is I guess in mainstream known as successful um, in 2015 I mean I had every reason to quit I mean I was uh, in 2015 I was 20 turning 24 years old I'd made it a little bit to about 80 um but I was generally um ranked between 100 and 200 about around the 150 mark I wasn't making a living there was I guess no big reason for me to keep going yep. um so I think there it was mess- I think more the dream yeah and more the perseverance together how close together. did you come to
0: knocking it all on the head um
1: not close just because every time it came into question of okay should I stop or I don't actually always didn't even come into question because I just I remember distinctly crying on my bed with my mum there and I mean it sounds so embarrassing to say but I just remember just telling her like I just know that I'm meant to be famous I just know that I'm meant to be known and 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 be 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 one of the best at what I do and I just it was like I think that childhood probably like child was probably crying as an adult of like why isn't that happening for me so it never actually was an option for me within myself
3: and what did your mom say in that conversation? I can't remember. Right. I can't remember. Sobbing and I think
1: I was too busy crying. just crying. Yeah, literally. I can't remember. I think but it,
3: generally were you encouraged or was there anyone ever saying to you, well, maybe you should start thinking about you're 24 now, maybe life beyond tennis.
1: No, I'd say I was always encouraged. I'd say I was encouraged to decide for myself. I think, yeah, I definitely was never told to keep going or told to stop. I think it was always there of, what do you want to do? Um, And so I just kept trying. (laughs) And
0: and do you think you were upset because you were trying to live up to the expectation that that eight-year-old girl had of, you're going to be world number one and lift all these trophies and there you are at 24 and it hasn't happened
1: um I think not so much about the dream I think by then the dream is also muddled with all the sacrifices that comes along the way not just my own my parents um my parents left their lives in in Australia Mm. they racked up a load of debt moving over during the financial crisis while they both lost their jobs like it was it was a whole family dynamic of sacrifice and knowing that having for me I felt personally responsible for that and so I think it was trying to deal with my dream and what I hadn't yet achieved coupled with well we're also in this state because of me and what what we decided to do for me so I think it's it was kind of all of it together more than anything.
0: It's a real reminder isn't it that when someone walks onto a tennis court or when any professional athlete competes in their chosen sport, look at all the things you carry at that moment. You carry the thoughts of the eight-year-old, you carry the sacrifices of your parents, the hopes of your grandparents and your friends who you know are watching on screen back home. So how do you channel all of that and block all of that out? Because it's not healthy. You don't play better tennis for all that baggage. You play worse, don't you? So what's the answer to to dealing with that?
1: Um, Well, I think that's... Where I got very lucky. Um, I got very lucky because that's when I was introduced to Juan Cotto yep. through him and my coach at the time, Esteban Carrill And it was during that period that we started to peel back the layers of of anxiety, of of um, responsibility, of 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 guilt. I think guilt is probably the biggest one, um, and start finding the root of why I play. And and that's when I think the dream came back into it. That's okay. where kind of I play because I fell in love with this sport as a young girl and I decided to dedicate my life to it. And whether I make it I'm, you know, using quotation marks, whether I make it or not, um, it's actually irrelevant to that part because I, you know, I'm here and I, I, I'm trying to do the best that I can. Yeah. And I think taking a lot of joy and pride in me doing the best that I can, I think that's what started then alleviating the guilt and, and that side and actually started making room to become a better tennis player, to become a better competitor, to study the game, to learn the game, to to actually maximise what I have as, a, as, a, as an athlete.
3: Would you say that you then started to love winning as opposed to fear losing was that a distinction that you began to make
1: I think so but I think more than anything I just started to love playing and I started to re actually almost fall in love again with the different things it offered me Um, an outlet of my competitiveness of my curiosity to improve my desire to learn and I started enjoying that process I think process became a very big trigger word for us it was about the day in, day out process in, and and yeah, enjoying that that process. <laughs> so had you
0: had you worked with anyone from a psychological perspective before you met Juan? Yeah,
1: I think um kind of through the Australian Federation at the time and even maybe come when I came over, I'm sure I'd I'd met with someone at the at the LTA as well. I think psychology and sports psychology has always kind of been around um, for me. Um, I think I came at the point where it started becoming more popular, but I think it was more in, yeah, it was when I met Juan where I actually, I found someone um, who just spoke to me in a way that I understood Mm -hmm. and I could grasp and I could use practically.
3: So could you give me an example of that then, Jo?
1: Um, So it was kind of with him that we started first establishing a routine as well um and accountability for the the things that i was doing so we'd i'd i remember i'd always read every morning the optimist's creed um and if probably pushed hard enough i probably could recite it still because i read that for years no 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 no, no. (laughs) um and it would be things like that's when i started using headspace yep um, the okay. app and that and kind of getting a practice into that. Then I think it was also working through different worries. So I'd start, I'd start. That's when I started writing. So writing down kind of what I was stressed about, and then there was a formula to that in in writing writing down what I was struggling with. Um, bringing all the reasons in why that was okay, why that was normal, then bringing all the reasons in why it could be grateful and, and why every, actually everything's okay. And it's yeah. almost like a, a game plan for yourself with whatever you're struggling with on that day. And it was this kind of habit that we built. And I think that started, again, a, creating space for me to then play when it came to On Court.
0: We get a lot of people talking to us about the struggle of anxiety and the baggage that they carry. And it, it seems to me like Juan kind of unpicked a lot of things from the past and realigned things in your mind. But almost more than that, it sounds like he kind of said, look, it's okay to have anxiety and struggle and fear and to carry all of this. But you can also carry it without being impacted by it. You can you can live with it. Yeah?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think it was it was understanding that actually whatever feelings that I'm feeling, whatever, um, however overwhelmed I feel, I'm actually fully equipped to deal with it. I'm yep. fully equipped to live through it. And I think it was with him that it, we we also discussed that nothing's permanent. Nothing's a permanent state. Everything keeps moving. And so I think that kind of gave me hope as mm-hmm. well yeah. when I was feeling really down or overwhelmed, stressed, upset, anything, um knowing that this is not going to stay like this i i will feel different at some point point. and i think actually um let me just get it right in my head but a formula that he gave me is um pain times resistance equals suffering so if i'm in pain let's say at a 10 but and i'm you know resisting at a 10 my suffering's going to be 100 yeah but if my resistance is zero then my suffering's zero. And although, you know, there's probably variances in there, but to me that gave it a very practical, tangible kind of of steps for me to take if I was feeling a certain way.
3: So when did you see the evidence of this work that you were doing, the habits, some of the reflections that you were doing? When did you start to see some of the seeds of that begin to blossom? Hmm.
1: I think probably in 2015 I was playing a... Small challenger circuit. I was also working with a a coach who worked with Esteban called Jose Manuel Garcia, and he would sometimes come on trips with me, and we were together in um, the US playing on green clay. Um, it was the kind of the prep circuit on the ITF tour for French Open, and we were playing twenty fives, twenty fives, and maybe a fifty thousand um, dollar tournament in. Jackson, Mississippi and in uh, Birmingham, Alabama and Dothan, Alabama, I think the place was called. And I remember just playing that whole trip, just really grateful and really just kind of in a, yeah, in a very sincerely grateful way of just being able to be there Mm. and just to be able to step on court and being healthy and enjoying the sunshine and and just really looking at these you know lovely little like clubs that we were playing at like how great is this yeah. how and i think that's when i really felt like i took just a, a like a really big breath and just kind of oh this is really great and if it never changes from this if this is if this is all i get in in kind of the hierarchy of tennis then my god yeah. i'm so lucky and I think it was that kind of just real deep appreciation for kind of what I was doing. Just it it just brought me joy. Brilliant. It just it, it it really I just started being very happy, um, and that was actually to be fair not too long before I'd I then qualified for the first time at the French Open, and it was then that kind of back end of that summer that I. I went on a, a decent winning streak. I won the 100K in Vancouver and then mm. qualified and made second round, ra- second week of so the US. So then when you
3: started going to the big opens and the French Open, yeah. how much did you manage to still retain that attitude of gratitude, that that appreciation of what you were experiencing there?
1: I think I still managed to to bring that. I think, I think through a bit of naivety as well. Um, I didn't, I'd, I'd never really exper- experienced the, Big tournaments, big stages. I'd played, you know, a, a couple rounds here, and I'd qualified once before at the U.S. Open. So I dabbled, I'd say, but I, I wasn't. It wasn't my routine stomping ground. It wasn't kind of my my week in, week yeah. out. So I I I went into those tournaments feeling very trusting of of the team that I had I felt very grateful for the people that I had around me and I think that definitely gave me a lot of strength at that time when I maybe didn't have my own to draw from as much I think I I I did but maybe a little bit cautiously a little bit nervously kind of oh this is bit, yeah. it's okay like this like so kind of almost like not not fully like opening myself oh this is amazing kind of thing to yeah. that bit I think that came well, comes also with time, I think, on different stages. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> and
0: I assume that Juan actually was really helpful for you then, away from tennis, because what he hasn't done is told you how to play a better backhand or how to be better at the net. This is these are life lessons that he was really giving you.
1: No, exactly, um, and it wasn't just even for me. It was at the time he was also doing he was doing work with my parents. Uh, I, th- I think oh, it was to understand okay. the dynamic of kind of a whole mindset and whole whole kind of you know struggles it's 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 also in the family it's 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 I wasn't the only one on that journey my parents mm. were as well and they had their own you know things that that, that they struggled with or or they needed to understand and mm. and I know he helped them a lot in in perspective and and kind of also understanding what I was going through so he it was it was a very nurturing environment it was very holistic it, it wasn't about performance it was yeah. about Living, It was about being a rounded human being. and but
0: I suppose in some ways it does... It's, you know, I know, of course, all that really matters is winning games of tennis, but actually when he improves that side of your life, it takes the pressure off the results because you're not getting your happiness from winning games of tennis anymore. He's teaching you the tools for happiness would whatever the situation whatever the tournament whatever the result
1: no exactly it was it was life lessons it was it was about teaching me to yeah find joy in my life regardless of tennis because there's going to be a life after tennis as well and that's actually a lot longer hopefully knock on wood <laughs> than than life before and I think it was it was just that understanding of me as a human being is actually that is what make what gives me a chance to be a tennis mm. player but that that is actually yeah. who you have to nurture to give the tennis player even a chance
3: so we get lots of parents listening to this podcast then, Joe. so what what was the big difference you noticed in your parents when they started to receive this advice
1: I think kind of like me I think there was a period where they also just kind of took a deep breath as well um you know, it's a very, it's a very high stress environment where everyone's really trying so hard to achieve one goal. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of like giving, they also, I think, found a way to give themselves some space from how I was doing or, you know, my tennis. And they kind of, I think they saw the people that I was surrounded by and they chose to trust them. And they, I think that gave them some peace as well, some peace and quiet probably within themselves as well. yeah it was it was just that perspective and deep breath and perspective is actually really a really useful tool <laughs> yeah. so
3: so take me into like the dynamic of say after a loss or a defeat, how did your parents then start to treat you in those moments?
1: I think it started becoming um more about the effort again, more about did I try my best yeah. I did well then we keep going we keep trying and less about judgment um Uh more about opportunity i think less about kind of insecurities more about kind of a plan and then and knowing what we're working on and and kind of seeing seeing the progress in little things yeah um so yeah it was they bought into the whole process of learning and and becoming better and trusted that if it was gonna give me success, it will and and give that time.
3: Because that's powerful because you hear a lot of like horror stories of some of the parents of young prodigies on the tennis circuit that have sacrificed everything like your parents did, but then become fixated on the outcome. So how did that help you, the fact that your parents then started to engage in the process rather than worrying about the outcome.
1: Um, I mean, I think, quite frankly, if if they didn't go on that journey with me, I probably wouldn't have been able to make it because I needed their help and their guidance for me to be able to do it as yeah. well. Because we we were in this together, and and it was. I was twenty-four, but I was very young. I was, you know, I'd I'd only ever lived at home, albeit I, tra- you know, I traveled the world a lot, and so. You know, it was still at the kind of end stages of me growing up and yeah. starting to become more of an adult. Mm. But it's kind of we needed to do this together for us to have a better relationship kind of on the court to do with tennis, but also off it. So I, yeah, I couldn't have done it without them also committing to it.
0: And they wouldn't have been able to do that without the help of Juan Cotto. Um, And the real tragedy here for people that are listening to this that don't know the story of your relationship with Juan was that he sadly took his own life. And I I wonder how difficult that was for you personally because when someone's giving you life advice, you look at them and think, wow, if only I was as sorted as you are. If only if I knew all the things that you know, I would have had a very different path to here. Um, You know it's hard to know what to ask really, but that is a a very hard thing for you to compute, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting, I think, I think actually people that give the best advice and and actually really understand something is because they have personal experience. Mm. And I knew that he had struggled with his own, his own thoughts and his own, his own emotional, mental well-being before, and he's spoken about that with me, um, and and I think it was kind of that journey for himself that he he saw the power in 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 thinking in the mind in 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 emotion, and I think you know, I mean, how incredibly passionate he was about helping people. Yeah. I think the two together made into an incredible human being and you know yeah I mean yeah no I yeah he was amazing
0: yeah I bet and I suppose the irony is without his own personal struggles he wouldn't have been in the position to help people like you and to transform people's lives and you know we've all we've all lost people close to us I think that perhaps the lessons that he gave you live longer and live stronger for the fact that he's no longer here to to see them
1: um you know, I mean, I'd I'd love if he was still here. I think yeah. the lessons will still be just as strong, but um for reasons we you know we don't know, life yeah. turned out the way it did and um but I know that he he would he would be very proud in in I think knowing that the things that he was teaching people, not just myself, but he touched a lot of people's lives, are still giving guidance and and mm. bringing joy to people and and I think he I think that would make him very happy.
0: And you work hard to remember the things he taught you because we had a guest on called uh, joe Malone who created the perfume brand. Yeah. She had a cancer diagnosis and she said that when she had the diagnosis she she was going to change the way she lived and then after she recovered she found that the lessons she said slipped through my fingers like sand and she couldn't catch them anymore. What do you do now to remember the lessons that Juan taught you to make sure that they don't slip through your fingers?
1: Well, I think because of the way he he taught me and the way he guided me, it was a very practical way. It was me doing the work. It was, it was routine. And, and because I figured it out for myself in the end with his help, actually the biggest gift that he gave is that the work is mine the the result is mine the hmm. the experience is mine and therefore i can i always have the ability to think back on it and yeah. create space to really okay what did i what what have i learnt and that's the gift he gave me it's actually he didn't do it for me he guided me in a way that i could do it for myself and that means that it's a part of me and It's not something that I'll lose. I think it was kind of that. it was powerful. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Can I
3: ask a question that I've asked a number of guests on this? How much improvement, if you had to put a figure on it, do you think working on the psychology and the mental side of your sport gave you?
1: Um I think for me it was a massive part because for me I think I I was always relatively gifted as an athlete I've got a good physique for what I do I've I've got good genes in that sense you know I I I I think I have a I have the ability to work hard I so I had fundamentals that could make me a good athlete could make me a good tennis player um and I think that got me to a certain point um but I think without that mental aspect on 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 just helping me to deal with my own crap really. Yeah. <laughs> without that opportunity, I, I don't think I would have I would have gone from A to B. I think I would have been stuck where I was.
3: So when you're now at the big opens and things like that, I imagine that most people have got a similar level of fitness, strength, the, their technique is relatively similar. How much then do you think the mental side of tennis decides who gets into those later rounds?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big part of what we do. It's a big part of our sport, of most sports. Um, but our matches can be long. It's a bit of chess. It's a bit of... so you know i 100% i think it's it's a part of but i think it's the mental side is kind of like a forehand or a backhand it's an it's another part that everyone's looking to maximize and everyone is becoming more and more self-aware knowing their triggers or knowing um, kind of okay how do i react in these situations yeah. okay what what thoughts can i think on to help me kind of stay stay in the moment, stay stay grounded, stay present, kind of everyone's starting to become aware. So it's actually becoming less of a factor okay. just because I think more people are aware of it. So it starts becoming the Inter- 1% yeah, in, yeah, interesting. in kind of, it's it's starting to become another shot, essentially, I yeah. think.
0: It's a good point though, when not many people are doing it, focusing on the mental yeah, side yeah. of something is really valuable.
1: It's revolutionary. When everyone's <laughs> doing it,
0: you have to be extra good at that to be any better, don't you?
3: But then the reason that I asked that question is because I read the quote that said that, that you didn't have huge levels of emotional control in those early days. You didn't almost have a plan B when times got tough. So how do you spot now that maybe you're starting to lose emotional control that could potentially cost you a game or that you need to change a game plan?
1: I think now it's knowing myself better. Yeah. I, think, I think part of, I guess, emo- losing emotional control or... I think a part of that is also immaturity. Do you agree um, with those?
2: Not necessarily,
1: not fully. Yeah. Um, just because I think a lot of it is context. A lot of it is is also it's understanding what's going on, and, and people lose their shit kind of every every, yeah. every day in different walks of life. And the only thing that's different is being in a heightened state yep. in front of loads of people. Mm. It becomes kind of that much more like whoa she's really kind of lost her head. Um, and it's not always the case, I think. Um, I, I I don't like it when I think, you know, you hear these hyperbolic words of like kind of, they've completely lost control, they're, you know, they're, they're out of it or, you know, let things happen, let things move. Um, but for sure, for me personally, I needed to find a space where I, could channel and could start re reorganizing my thoughts when I became stressed yeah. or when I became so-called emotional. So how do you do that then? Perspective. Um, that's where actually perspective became a big part of actively doing it during matches. It was kind of taking a step back and saying, the sun's shining. My family loves me. I'm out here. I'm getting a good tan. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm, you know, staying physically fit. I I get to do something that I love. What's the problem?
0: And you'll run through that (laughs) in your head, will you, during the match in between a serve or in between a set or whatever?
1: I think less so now, just because I think it's maybe become a little bit more oiled, a little bit easier. Um, But yeah, then I would. I would actually just really go through different things like just kind of gratefulness and perspective.
3: So do you remember a few years ago when Andy Murray brought out a letter that he'd written to himself of all his strengths and I, characteristics I think and I do, people yeah. saw that? Do you have anything like that, any props or anything to help you trigger that that sense of perspective?
1: No, no, but back actually back in 2016 in um, at the Australian Open at the time, Uh, at the top of tennis rackets on the top of the grip there's that little band that kind of holds the sticky tape in place that holds the grip kind of Mm -hmm. in place and I I got to have like different type different colors of that little kind of band thing and it had different words on there and it had like play it had love it had power it had um, focus and actually that to me Really, I really enjoyed it, and I would purposely choose a different one for each match that I played at the Australian Open that Probably. year. And I kind of would look at it sometimes and think, you know what, I I can practice yeah. like this is something I can use. Like I just kind of. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I just remember yeah, that, that kind of right felt that. like it's yeah.
0: perfect. Yeah. it's actually a good reminder that you know people think that to change your mindset or to get control of your brain is a really big job and it's nigh on impossible. The reality is, it can be something as simple as looking at a color looking at a word, looking at the sunshine, thinking yeah. about your parents, the little things can yeah. have such a huge impact, can't they?
1: No, I think so. And I think, it, you know, it's again coming back to that realisation that whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever heaviness you have, it's not permanent. It can change. Mm. And actually all the tools that you need are within you or in your environment. And it can be sights, sounds, smells, your own kind of... Feel like you know you have the ability to to live through it and, and to to go through it and, and change it and yeah
0: from my conversation, I get the sense that one of your frustrations is people passing judgment on a match you 've played or the way a match has gone. I mean we have to accept we live in a world of no nuance, right, so you are either brilliant or awful there's nothing in between <laughs> let 's just accept <laughs> that that is the way the world works these days. Have you? Learned to not fight against people casting judgment over what happened during a match when they have basically no idea what happened because they weren't out on the court, or um do you just accept it now? how 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 do you deal with those things? Do you fight them?
1: um no i I, I don't. i I understand what it is and and the place it has. I think as a as a logical person, I get that. I think when it becomes difficult is when you're tired, when you're feeling vulnerable when you're feeling sad that's when that's when it's harder to do it's harder to practice that practical Mm -hmm. mind and that's when that's when it can affect you that's when it can kind of creep in and and kind of jab you a little bit and 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 that's when you take it on um so yes i i know how to deal with it and, and i get it do, does it always happen that I I deal with it that way? No. Sometimes I I get upset by it. Sometimes I cry about the injustice of it. Sometimes, um, or sometimes I don't care. Sometimes yeah. it's fine. Sometimes, well, everyone's entitled to their opinion. But sometimes it's how dare they have that opinion? So, you know, I think it's also on what state you're in and kind of how much things are affecting you but again perspective
0: (laughs) yeah so yeah so as, as you probably know i work you know as a sports presenter like what are the questions or what are the things that we should be doing when it comes to people like you that educate the audience better rather than just guessing that you've lost your shit or you've you know you've mentally collapsed or whatever what should we be asking people like you to really understand what goes on in in games and in events
1: um, I think it's individual, but I think it's more listening to what we say. I think for me it's I actually do try consciously to give an insight, not just for the journalists, but for the people who are reading the pieces and I, I do try to actually get my personality across, my my beliefs across, my thought process across, like kind of what who am I as a player, who am I as a person. And I think I think what's more most frustrating maybe is when the answer you give, they don't like, or they want something different, and it's more the case of well, I can't give you anything different because this is who I am, and so work with me then because I can't I can't be anything other than me, yep. and I think it's I think it's more that that's for me is where my frustration more comes from is I'm trying to I'm trying to let you know mm. who I am, you know, play ball with me here um, because I. I like talking. I like sharing my experiences. I, I've been very open in in the work that I've done with Juan, with with, with you know people in the mm. past, especially on the mental side, and I think. I don't, I don't have any hang-ups about sharing.
0: Well, there's eight-year-old Johanna Contas living somewhere in the world, dreaming of being the world number one. So <laughs> the lessons that you can share, you know, are only a good thing. It's been a really interesting sort of journey to go from running up hills with your dad to leaving home to crying with your mum because your career wasn't going the way you wanted to having your eyes opened by Juan to actually the fact that the power is all yours. And then we get to the point where suddenly like you're in the top five best tennis players in the world and you are the British number one and you are in that place that you dreamed of as a little kid carrying the hopes of an entire nation at Wimbledon. Was it all you hoped it would be?
1: Oh, uh, yes and no. Yes, it is lots of people around you. Yes, it is um, exciting. But actually you go home and it's very normal. Yeah. So it's not it's not everything you thought it would be it's actually a lot better because it's just your life and it's normal and it's nothing actually changes and i remember actually in 2017 because i think that's what you're referring to yeah, yeah. um i remember playing the tour- the matches and i remember feeling nervous or stressed or it was difficult and i remember kind of you know looking up in the stands and just looking at my boyfriend there and thinking, well, actually, after this, we'll go home and you'll still love me and whatever happens here. And, and you know, it was kind wow. of that normality of, of kind of being with that. And I think that's why it's actually so much better than what you dream of. For me, it was anyway, yeah. just because it's just normal.
0: <laughs> and that's when you were playing some of your best ever tennis. So it shows that you don't have to be struggling. Johnny Wilkinson spoke on this podcast about he thought that struggling would lead to success and he realised that struggling just leads to more struggling. And Yes. This is really interesting. That just as you were at the absolute peak, you weren't having to struggle. You were kind of free.
1: Yeah. No, I think I was. And I think actually my, I would call it my biggest year of freedom probably was in 2019. Um, and that's when I started working with Dimitri Zabialov. And he's been an incredible influence on my life. And the you know perspectives than he started bringing into then my tennis and kind of again giving me the kind of the the control of how do you want to play what mm. do you want to do out there kind of the what choices do you want to make and trust those choices there you know the if they don't pay dividends then who knows in how how they pay dividends in other parts of the match it was mm. kind of understanding that you know there's no right or wrong there's there's you know, things again keep moving, but yeah, and actually that year I played I played very free that year.
3: So what you're describing there, what Dimitri's doing, is the idea of guided discovery that is yes. allowing you to answer the questions. He's just posing them. Which sounds obvious in many ways. How common is that approach within your
1: world? I think it's very uncommon. Uncommon. Uh, I'd say it's uncommon. Um, because it because it takes trust and faith in in I think a path less kind of walked less mm. discovered you know there's there's still a lot of a lot of success and a lot of a, a lot of good things in in the kind of you do what you're told you know there's a lot of good co- coaches out there who who've worked with a lot of great players who together they've they've done that but I I don't function like that and I think it's all very individual. So for me this kind of work this way of working is actually, I, th- I think the only way I can perform, I can bring the best out of myself. So for me, it was very important. But no, it's not common.
3: Well, because it sounds very similar to the approach that your dad took when you first declared that you wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning yes. and run. That you're you're dictating the terms and yeah. conditions rather than somebody's got a stick and beating you to get yeah, out there
1: and, I, and who knows maybe there's there's you know there's some subconscious kind of way of that's how I was wired when I was young so maybe that's why that kind of working as an adult works for me I don't know but I didn't think of that so yes you're right
0: It yeah I suppose I'm kind of thinking that the content content that's sitting in front of us today is so different to the 21 22 year old who was totally outcome focused yeah. You're probably realising now that actually the outcome is its the journey, not the outcome, right?
1: Yeah. No, 100%. And I think that was actually one of the biggest things that I, I wrote always consistently is, I, I, you know, I'm committed to the process. I'm enjoying the process. And and the outcome will be what it will be. Mm. It's not that. It's kind of here. Yeah. And I think actually my fitness trainer said this, and I probably won't use these. I can't remember the exact words, but it was basically along the lines of, you know there's winning and losing and the highs and the lows but actually then there's living mm. you know we live every day and and it's it's make that living purposeful and enjoyable and and you want to come to work with the people that you enjoy working with and because you know winning losing it's kind of here there it's it's high it's low it's, mm. but in between all that there's actually just living every day
0: and is that quite scary when you've spend a whole life being focused on on the goal, on the outcome. Someone actually sent to you, no, 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 let's not think about winning the tournament. Let's just think about enjoying playing in the tournament. It, because whether it's a CEO or a teacher or a parent listening to this, to shift their mindset away from the the result is I think is scary.
1: Yes, but actually to me it was liberating. I needed it. I think I was starved for it. I needed because I was doing it one way and it wasn't making me happy. It wasn't making me successful. It 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 was actually making me downright miserable. It was making my parents miserable. Like it was it it wasn't working. So mm. actually what was the harm for me? For me it was why not? And and I just took to it because I I I understood it. I understood it very quickly and I could see it, like kind of what joy could bring me. And then hey I'm happy why you know what's there to to kind of complain about
3: so can you tell us about the transferability of of that mindset though about letting go of the result and focusing on the process to a world outside of tennis
1: um I think it's completely transferable because I've used it in different things so you know for me getting used to even this, for example, you know, I probably would get more nervous before than I would now um, just because I understand that I will come here, I will do the best that I can and I will I will enjoy speaking to you both and the result will be what it will be and I will fi- keep my fingers crossed that, you know, I give you guys a good episode, but at the end of the day, I can only be myself and I can only do the best that I can. So I think it's that that you can apply in, in anything and I was actually the other day I, I just did um, Sunday brunch and I was really nervous before right. going on I, I I don't know why but I felt very very nervous and again it's just that same process of okay I'm here I'm on time I've I've done everything that I can I will go out there I'll be kind I'll be happy and we'll see what happens
0: <laughs> I think this episode will be okay don't you? <laughs> I think it'll be exceptional <Yeah>. Um, We've reached the point of our quick fire questions that we always finish the podcast with. Um, First of all, the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into.
1: Respectful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think being honest, honesty, that's the word, honesty. And communication, to communicate.
3: What advice would you give to a teenage Johanna just starting out?
1: I wish I learnt earlier on to just be grateful and be patient and, and look at the world more broadly, look at my career more broadly. I think, you know, it's very narrow. It's very all, all-encompassing, kind of stop and smell the roses kind of thing. Yeah. Lovely. Stop and smell the roses. <laughs> very good.
0: Um, could you give one book recommendation for our... High performance family to to have a read of.
1: It's uh, winning, not fighting. No, yeah, winning, not fighting by John Vincent. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Why why does that book work for you?
1: Um, I actually just started it to be honest, and I'm just really interested in in reading kind of the philosophy that I've bought into, but a different take on it um, because it's not maybe quite word for word mm. what I kind of maybe learned but it's definitely along the same lines or or certain bits that I've read, like they are definitely, so it's it's just nice to hear how someone else has also practically used it in their life.
3: Very good. What's your one golden rule for a high performance life?
1: I think practicing joy, practicing gratefulness. I think that gives you the chance to be your best self and therefore your best chance of being successful.
0: Brilliant. And there is one more. This is the final, final question. What is your biggest strength? And what is your biggest weakness?
1: My biggest strength, I, I don't know uh, about myself, my biggest strength is um, I laugh a lot. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's, that's helped me in a lot of different things. Um, my biggest weakness is probably being able to take a break. Mm. I, that's taken some time for me to know kind of when to apply myself, but when to also kind of take a bit of space nurture myself, take some time off. Um, that's something that I've I've had to learn and continue to learn.
0: Brilliant. Look, uh, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. <laughs> thank you. Um, and especially for opening up and talking to us about Juan, which I, I know wouldn't have been um, very easy for you. But I think that like to get from the eight year old to being a professional tennis player, right, you had to be all in you kind of at that point, you had to totally be all about the outcome. Um, and I think what's been really powerful in this conversation is sharing with us the journey from being outcome focused to process focused and it's worked for you in a tennis sense but i really hope that for everyone listening to this it works for them in the sense of their own lives as well thank you
1: thank you no thank you for having me
0: (laughs) damien jake another really interesting interview you know what um i think people listen to this and they're looking for really huge things that could could be said that will change their lives and alter the way they see the world. What Johanna has just basically said there is that a tiny detail, focusing on the process, gaining perspective, can change everything.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think just to take us with her onto the centre court at Wimbledon and remember to look around and see a boyfriend and remember that in a couple of hours' time you'll be back at home together and everything will be normal or... Appreciate just the sun shining on your back at any stage. They're they're techniques that any of us can appreciate at any moment, just the ability to live in the moment and stop worrying about the outcome and just focus on the moment that we're in.
0: And also I think um, don't underappreciate just how important those little things can be. And there will definitely be people listening to this now going, you put up a slogan at work. Is it really going to change the way people think? Or you write a little note in your notebook. Is that really going to, Alter the way someone operates daily. We've just had someone who is the best tennis player in Britain, was number four in the world, and at that time had the word love or appreciation or power or focus written on her tennis racket. And at times of struggle, just looked at that word, and that was enough for her to push through, persevere, and win that game of tennis. If you can use that technique at the absolute highest echelon in world sport, everyone can use it.
3: Absolutely. It's like just a, like a trigger that just prompts you to connect with the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings that you have when you're happy, when you're experiencing what uh, what, you, what Joe described as her golden rule, just joy, any moments that connect you to that. I've got to then help you feel better and ultimately perform better.
0: She reminded me quite a lot of Johnny Wilkinson, the way she spoke when he came on the podcast.
3: Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. Johnny came to some of those realisations at the end of his career. And I found what fascinating, what Joe shared was, she's discovered it halfway through her career. And that's what's propelled her to the heights that she's reached.
0: It's interesting because I think a lot of professional sports people would think, well, I I can't have that growth mindset now. I'm too focused on being a sports person. The growth mindset is what's made her a successful sports person, and when you sit and have a conversation like we did with her, I mean clearly her parents were were brilliant the way that they inspired her and pushed her. But then I think she probably did go into this quite dark and difficult period of struggling with her tennis, and her tennis was what was defining her. Yeah. now it's clearly not what defines her, so I kind of get the sense that she is much better equipped for what lies ahead of a, her tennis career because you know she will have 40 or. 50 years on the earth not being a tennis player and she seems like she's sorted for that period.
3: Absolutely. I think that's a really powerful message that she's not defined by, by just what she does out there on the court. She's defined by the person that those experiences have shaping her to be. And she can only realise that by appreciating the process and not the outcome. There'll be hundreds of tennis players out there that will never win an Open, that will never win a tournament. So does that make them lesser people? Than the champions. Well, if you focused on the process, the answer to that is very clearly not. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you, mate.
0: Well, I reckon uh you may well have needed a pen and paper for that. I I found it a really emotional conversation at numerous points, and I finished that conversation, as you heard me saying with Damien at the end, with a lot to think about. But I feel like our guest is in such a good place mentally and there's no doubt that if you're a professional athlete, over time, your physical prowess melts away. But if you can make sure that mentally you're you're strong, then you're in a good place. And I've I left that conversation just feeling excited for her future. So, um, thank you so much to Yana Konter for coming on the High Performance Podcast and being so so honest with us and sharing so many things that I think some people who are at the their very peak of their careers wouldn't necessarily be willing to share but once again it's a reminder of the power of these kinds of conversations where we give it time and we really get to the root of what you at home want to hear so that you can improve your own lives I'm not sure there's anything else out there like this at the moment um, And I'm so grateful that you're all part of the journey with us. Um, If you'd like to get even more from us, of course, we also have a members club called The High Performance Circle. More podcasts, more inspirational talks, more keynote speeches, newsletters, offers, giveaways. It's a great club and it's free to be a member. All you have to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com and sign up for The High Performance Circle. So that's it from our Olympic specials. Um, thanks to all of our brilliant guests. And don't forget, you can also roll back into the high performance archives because of the six most successful Olympians that Britain has ever produced. Three of them have now been on the podcast Jason Kenny, Sir Chris Hoy, and Tom Daly as well. Um, and I reckon it may well be Sir Tom Daly and Sir Jason Kenny before too long. Right, we're back with another episode next week, but from all of us on the High Performance Podcast, from Hannah, from Will, from Professor Damien Hughes, from myself, Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio, we can't thank you enough for being part of the conversation that we're having right here. Keep your thoughts coming into us. Ping us some messages on Instagram. We love to hear from you. But most of all, take what you've learned, really use it to uplift, build, and push your own life forwards. Have a brilliant High Performance Day. Lots of love.